Could you forgive your mother's murderer? We're in a two-part series on forgiveness on the Love First podcast. Our special guest returning from last week is Dr. Everett Worthington, Jr., Professor Emeritus at Virginia Commonwealth University. His work in the psychology of forgiveness is known worldwide. The author of 30 books and more than 350 scholarly articles, he is even presently conducting studies on forgiveness around the world. If this is your first time on the Love First podcast, thank you for joining us. We would invite you to like, subscribe, and share. And if you are returning, then you already know the blessing that Dr. Worthington will be this evening as we continue our conversation around how do we forgive ourselves and others. Love first, I know. Lord, take control. Uh, we want to thank you again for joining us, and we are so happy you have uh, Dr. Everett Worthington back with us to continue our discussion of forgiveness. So, uh, Ev, thank you so much for uh, joining us last week and for getting us started in this very important uh, uh, exploration of forgiveness. Uh, thank you. And uh, some things you mentioned last week, you know, you talked to us a little bit about the ideas of, of forgiveness, uh, two types, uh, decisional forgiveness and emotional uh, forgiveness. And as you laid that out for us, you were helping us understand how those function in relationship to the injustice gap. And then you closed us out with this kind of, uh, reach forgiveness, these five steps to help us work toward forgiveness. And the more we work at it, uh, the better we uh, uh, could imagine ourselves uh, growing toward uh, being forgiving people. But then this episode, we're going to take a turn. Our hope is to explore how we forgive others and how we forgive ourselves. And so let's begin uh, this discussion with this question. How is the forgiveness of someone else and the forgiveness of ourselves similar and different? Well, I, I think um, I, I think they're similar in that once we start working on forgiveness, the processes of making a decision to forgive myself is the same process as making a decision to forgive somebody else. And the process of working through steps to uh, experience an emotional forgiveness are the same steps that uh, we would work through uh, in forgiving ourselves. So the differences uh, come about because we're really... Uh, we almost approach the two ideas with a different framework. So forgiving ourselves, we experience much more as a perpetrator than we do as a victim. So, you know, when I struggle with forgiving myself, I'm really more struggling with my own self-condemnation 
or doing something wrong or being something that's less than I think I could be. That's much more, uh, it's much more similar to divine forgiveness where I come to God as, you know, someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness, but relying on, on mercy. So, uh, but forgiving, uh, you know, other people, I come at it much more with under the psychological experience of being more a victim of having been hurt or having been offended or wronged in some way. So I think the kind of the whole way that we approach the issue is um, uh, really quite different. Mm-hmm. Now, I was uh, <clears throat> thinking a lot about self-forgiveness uh, back in 2005 because uh, my, my brother uh, had committed suicide right before the, the time where I was spending a, a, about four months in, uh, at the University of Cambridge as a visiting scholar. And right before I arrived at Cambridge, he, he had committed suicide. And the, the reason was he he had um, discovered my mother's body. She had been uh, murdered about 10 years before that. And and he never could get the pictures out of his mind. And so, you know, he was uh, really struggling with a post-traumatic stress problem. And, you know, he finally said something to me about that. And, uh, and I, I said, Mike, you know, I think you need to get some counseling to deal with this uh, uh, PTSD. And it, he didn't have a very high opinion of counselors. And so he said, well, I'm not going to any shrink. This is what he says to his shrink brother, right? So this tells you something, yeah. and, uh, and so I persisted. I said, "Well, Mike, you know, you know, if you haven't gotten over this in ten years, you're probably not going to get over it in another three months or six months, unless you do something different." And and he said, "Well, I'm not going to any blankety blank shrink, and I don't want to hear any more about it." Yes, and uh, so you know. I understand resistance. I've been a clinical psychologist for 40 years, 40, more than 40 years. And, you know, I know that you, you kind of back off and give the person space and come at it a different way. Did I do that? Not a chance. I responded to my brother just like a hormone-crazed 18-year-old, you know. And, and so when he said, you know, I don't want to hear any more about it, I went, whatever you know as you can hear the adolescent whine there yes anyway, uh that uh, of course is what came back to haunt me uh, when about two or three months later he had committed suicide and yeah. i did not do what i knew i could do to try to to help him and so i was over there in uh cambridge and i was thinking a lot about my own self-condemnation and uh, and trying to work through uh, how do we help people deal with this. We had already just completed about three months before I left for that trip, a, a study on uh, self-forgiveness in uh, inpatient uh, alcohol 
wards. And so, uh, so we'd done a little bit about it, but we didn't have a very sophisticated look at it. And so I was trying to think about it. And I was reading a book, and it was about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the, the uh, woman who wrote this was named Pumla Gabodo Madikizela. And I met her at uh, Kennedy School of Government up in Harvard uh, about a year before that. And I really liked her presentation, liked her work, so I got her book. Well, uh, she ended up spending 40 interviews with one of the most notorious um, people in the nationalist uh, party uh, uh, that was the kind of the chief policeman named Eugene de Kock. Yeah. And, uh, and as I was reading this book, I started thinking, you know, what if Eugene de Kock had come to me and said, you know, I've killed a hundred people myself, but I've decided to forgive myself. Wow. What would I say? And the answer is, I would say, no way. You cannot do that. This is not just a decision that you make to feel better about yourself. There has to be something more in self-forgiveness than there is in forgiving other people where I can make a decision and I can work toward an emotional change. And so what I think is the more is that there has to be an element of accepting uh, responsibility and, and being accountable. Yeah. So, so the first thing that I would have to do if I were dealing with self-condemnation is, is go to God. I would have to say, you know, I did wrong, Lord. You know, I can't fix this myself. I rely on you. You know, that's my only hope. Yes, and, and so that's kind of a first step. But a second step is I hurt other people, you know, by not behaving as well as I could have behaved with my brother. His son and his wife felt consequences when they lost him. Yes. I might have been able to make less you know, po uh, you know, less possible. You know, it's not uh, like I felt responsible for Mike's decision. He made the decision himself, but I, I probably could have done more and probably, you know, let down um, people in his life. And so, you know, I would need to be accountable for that and, and, and responsible and to try to make some kind of social repairs. Yes. Right. I make that spiritual repair by going to God and letting yes. God his mercy work. And I make a social repair by seeking to, you know, help them by, you know, maybe there's things that can't be undone, you know, but maybe I could pay something forward so that yes. other didn't have to experience this. So yeah. I ended up writing a book on self-forgiveness, you know, yeah. as a way of kind of paying this forward. Yes. Yes. And then, the, 
The third difference is, uh, you know, I probably have done some damage to myself. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, you know, whatever wrong I did, you know, I may have inflicted a kind of a moral injury on myself. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of this as people come back from Iraq and, and Afghanistan, and, and they've seen and done things that they don't approve of, and they feel that they've inflicted this moral injury on themselves. And so, so that repair of the moral injury and in trying to, you know, uh, come to a more um, an acceptance more of what I've done you know, really all of those things precede, uh, come before uh, kind of working through forgiving myself. Yes. God, social repair, and moral repair, my my own psyche. Yes, something I'm hearing in this is that working through forgiveness may or may not offer us the ability to undo something or to uh, uh, what I'm referring to in general would be if I had a fender bender in my car, I may be able to replace that fender, repaint it, the paint matches perfectly, and apparently all is restored. But versus an injury, that does permanent physical damage to someone that cannot be taken to, you know, an auto shop and just a replacement part put on. And if I'm hearing you correctly, in regard to your brother, there are parts of that that were not your decision and parts of that that you could not uh, change or restore, but you did seek other ways to work through the connection with God, the the social uh, repair, and the moral repair. And I think that's important. Uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, your work with people that were in inpatient alcohol uh, treatment uh, or a, a, a treatment for alcohol abuse You know, during recovery month, one of the things that we highlight and recognize is that as people are uh, growing into freedom from addiction and living sober lives and uh, seeing themselves blossom again and flourish again in so many countless ways, uh, the clarity of mind that comes with all of that can also bring back a clearer recognition of things that we've done in the past, wrongs uh, committed, uh, things that have been done that have hurt family, uh, friends, even straight, complete strangers. And we find ourselves trying to figure out, well, now what? You know, what do we do about that? Do we just try to stuff them somewhere in a garbage can in the back of our mind? Do we risk revisiting those uh, uh, sins we've committed? Do we risk all of that? And the reality is, is that I believe the Spirit kind of calls us to bring those things out so that we can uh, deal with them and that uh, and we can find this freedom that, that, that you are referring to. Um, I noticed that one of the resources that you do provide is uh, self-forgiveness. 
that that is something that you have uh, created. And before we move on from here, I want to uh, stop and, and uh, thank you for revealing some very, very challenging components of your life uh, for you to think through. I know you mentioned it in passing, but finding a way to navigate your mother's murder and then looking at your brother's suicide. These are things that are very deep uh, shaping uh, components of your life. And you have gifted us this evening by putting these out here so that we too can begin to look at some of the very, very traumatic components of our lives and start to trust that somehow God could help us navigate uh, uh, those. Um, how do we forgive those who, in some sense uh, or another, either believe that they have not wronged us, or at least they won't uh, acknowledge that they have wronged us? How do we forgive someone who resists acknowledging uh, the way that they have, uh, have wounded us? Uh, well, last, uh, last week, I, um, you know, I talked about an injustice gap and yeah. how the, the larger that gap, the harder it is to deal with one way or the other. Now, I could, I could deal with it by, you know, turning it over to God. I could deal with it by forbearing, uh, by seeking justice. There are many ways I could deal with it. I can mix and match those and then mix in with forgiveness so that, you know, all of them kind of get the, the, um, the uh, injustice gap smaller. Mm. But when a person just doesn't want to accept responsibility that they've hurt us or they don't, they truly don't believe that they were at fault at all, that they are in fact a victim. Uh, what that does is that increases our injustice gap. Yeah. So, the process of forgiving that person is exactly the same as if the gap were smaller. It's just that it's going to be harder to do. It, it might take more work because, you know, I feel that a wrong has been added on top of an, of another wrong and that makes the fence higher to get over. Yes. Um, in fact, for some people, it can be, it can feel like as they look at that, that wall that they have to get over, they feel like there's no way in the world I can get over that. And they give up and, and don't try to forgive. Yes. yes. I, I do believe that people can, you know, kind of knock off pieces of the wall. It's kind of like the Berlin Wall falling down, you know, mm -hmm. it came off chunk by chunk. Yeah, that's right. I may turn this over to God and that, you know, lowers things down a little. And, and I may just say, Lord, your, you know, your will be done. And, you know, if, if you think punishment is in order, that's up to you. And then maybe another chunk goes down. So, you know, I can maybe get it a little lower to where I, I can finally get over it or scramble over it or climb over it or, pole vault over it, whatever it takes to get out. <laughs> so you have, uh, you mentioned uh, in our last episode, this uh, study uh, with six different countries, uh, these two places in Ukraine, 
but you mentioned uh, Colombia, Indonesia, uh, these uh, different places where you're doing this forgiveness work. You've also mentioned um, reading this book about South Africa and then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and I know that you've had more experience there. What have you learned about personal forgiveness through your interaction with like social forgiveness or societal forgiveness. Uh, when we think about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the idea of a society trying to move forward without just disintegrating, but determining that somehow we want to remain a country, we want to somehow move forward as a society, but we can't ignore what happened. So we got to figure out how to move beyond that. And they chose uh, the Truth and, and Reconciliation Commission, which of course did uh, invite uh, forgiveness. What have you discovered about the correlation or uh, 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 maybe a contrast about personal forgiveness and those big social uh, attempts to try to forgive and move on like as a society? Well, I think. Uh Probably the main uh, learning, if there is a main learning, is that forgiveness is very, very individual. Mm. And there's no formula. As much as I would like to think that the reach forgiveness formula is a formula, you know, there's no formula. So Mike McCullough... Uh, who really got me started on studying forgiveness scientifically. Mike did a, just a brilliant study in which he invited people who had just been offended and hurt in some way to come into his lab and, you know, report on the amount of unforgiveness they felt toward the person. And then he invited them to come back 19 straight days. Mm -hmm. So what he found was that most hurts are forgiven within three or four days wow. they're gone you know but about 10 to 15 percent are not mm. and furthermore once you know on the average once they get entrenched they often last a long time so it looks like you know a, a curve that uh you know is a particular curve it's just really very brilliant to see this curve written out, you know, where they fall off quickly and it levels out. The brilliant thing about that study was the next thing he did was plot individual responses. Mm. And it looked like spaghetti. It was not a smooth curve, but some people got worse instantly. Some people got worse over time. Some people it seethed and they finally took off. Some people didn't change at all in the whole 19 days. Some people coasted down. Some people fell off and forgave, you know, right away. It was all over the place. There's no one uh, solution to this. And there's no one solution societally. So the, the South African Recon Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in some ways had a lot of success, although it was criticized by folks. But Rwanda, uh, which had the massacres in 
1994, uh, you know, they were in a very different place and they could not just pick up the South African solution right. and apply it in Rwanda because in South Africa, it was the minority of people, the whites, that were inflicting most of the wrongs on the majority blacks. But in Rwanda, it was just the opposite. It was the majority who had attacked the minority. And so they tried to form these gachacha courts, they called them, but they're local village courts. And they invited people to, you know, tell the truth and uh, basically, you know, uh, the people who had been victimized and, you know, had, uh, had human rights violations they did not want to point a finger at a majority person and say, he killed my brother, he killed my, my, my wife, whatever, because they were in the minority and the majority could, you know, really do violence to the person who testified. So, so you, you can see that even two mm -hmm. African countries happening at the, around the same time, uh, the solutions had to be vastly different, and the same is true with individuals. You know, there's there's no one size fits all here. Yes, yes, and something that I'm hearing, uh, combining our two episodes, that is incredibly helpful, is that what you have advocated is more uh, steps, uh, steps and consistency. Try these steps. Work through these steps. Uh, something that was so helpful to me out of uh, last week's session was the idea that, you know, with the emotional replacement, I might, I might try for empathy, but if that doesn't work, then sympathy and maybe, maybe then compassion and maybe love. But recognizing that empathy might not be where I find that next uh, step forward, you know. And I think that that's very, very helpful because in the desire to do the, the good work of moving from a completely negative orientation, either toward myself or toward others, and moving toward a positive and meaningful orientation toward myself and toward others, uh, that's forgiveness's gift, is, uh, is the work of that transition. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life upset with myself or upset with others. I don't want, I, I've joked uh, with uh, my friends and family that my mother's side of the family were Olympian gold medalists in grudge holding. You know, they, uh, they, they, just, uh, uh, they just had the capacity to hit the gold medal podium every time. And I know, I know that they're not all that way. And I know that it hurt the ones who did choose a grudge over uh, forgiveness. And I know that it did do damage to themselves and to their relationships. Um, what do we do when we find ourselves uh, re-traumatized by the memories of the things we've done wrong or the things that have been uh, done to us that were wrong? What do we do when we find ourselves trying to forgive, genuinely working the steps of forgiveness, but we're still re-traumatized by that hurt. What do we, what do we do? 
Well, uh, on you know, one of the exercises that we have people do after they've gone through these uh, five steps to reach emotional forgiveness is we send them to the, uh, we, we ask them to write uh, on their hand in, you know, in, in the, you know, black ink, uh, what a kind of a, pardon this pun, but a shorthand description of the, uh, uh, the, the uh, thing that they're trying to forgive. And then we send them to the bathroom to wash it off. And we ask them when they come back, how, how did you do? And, uh, you know, about 80% of them will say, yeah, did great, you know, washed it off. About 20% say, well, you know, I washed most of it off. I can still see it. So then we're like, okay, well, how are you going to get it off? And the solution is wash it again, you know, and sometimes time is going to just eroded off yes. and, and this is you know if we've got hurts uh because somebody has harmed us and and we have you know forgiven them then uh the hurt may come back and often the solution is not to try to forgive again it is sometimes it is but basically what happens when i experience hurt is i am conditioned to respond in anger and fear it's just the way god made us so for example if i'm um cooking you know breakfast for my family and uh and i'm you know, over the stove and I'm, I'm cooking. We, we have this cabinet above the stove that's kind of a demon cabinet because it can sense when I look away and it pops open and the corner of it, you yes. know, itself, and I will raise up and hit it. Yes. And I respond automatically by punishing it. I slam it, you know. You know, I feel anger. You know, it's a result of being hurt. It is a natural thing to do. And it's a conditioned response so that if somebody hurt me and I see that person or I think about that person, I may have forgiven them long ago, but that hurt and anger will come back. Now, if I I go, oh, I'm feeling angry, I must not have forgiven the person. Nope. I have forgiven them, yes. and what's, what I'm experiencing is exactly the way that God made me. It's yes. that, that anger, yes. that fear that came from a prior hurt is a signal to me to be careful because you got hurt there before, and you could get hurt again. Yes. That's not unforgiveness. That's God you know, working in my life to make my body protect myself from stepping out into, you know, some kind of playing in traffic again when I almost got once before there. Yes, yes. Now, you know, it's fascinating. The same carpenter must have built the cabinet over my sink in my house. I have a demon (laughs) cabinet in my house. You know, conspiracy. (laughs) It is, and it has been similarly punished, by the way. But uh, 
So maybe one of the things that it would be good for us to kind of uh, really drive a stake in the ground here is that sometimes we think, well, if I remember the offense, I must not have forgiven the offense. And I'm hearing something different in how you're describing this, that just remembering the offense does not mean that we didn't forgive, but it might just be God's signaling system that reminds us that hurt was there. Uh, What do we do when we find ourselves kind of in that transition point where we have forgiven ourselves, but we're trying to learn to trust ourselves, or we have forgiven someone, but now we're trying to learn to trust them again. And, and I, I think a lot of people can relate to that kind of that uneasy place where, yes, I've forgiven them, but can I trust them? Yes, I've forgiven myself, but can I trust myself? How would you kind of guide us through that idea of learning to move into trust, even though we have that uneasiness of uh, those feelings you've described? Well, I think that, you know, I, I appreciate the word trust because I think, you know, that there is a confusion that often happens that is between forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So I, if I forgive someone, it's something that happens inside my body. Mm-hmm. You know, it is either a decision, uh, that's decisional forgiveness, or it's an emotional change, but it happens inside my skin. Trust is something that happens between two people. It's not the same thing. It's, It's part of reconciliation. So reconciliation is restoring trust in a relationship where trust has been damaged. And I can forgive someone and never reconcile with them. You know, because it's dangerous to yes. be in a relationship with them, and they're going to kill me if yes. uh, they see me again. So, 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 what forgiveness does is it it gives us a kind of a yearning to reconcile. Mm-hmm. But even though I may have that yearning to reconcile, I also have good judgment that says, but this person is not a safe person to reconcile with. Yes. Yes. Or this is not the right time to mm. try to do that. Yes. I yes. think people often get into trouble is is they confuse the two. They think if I forgive the person, I have to get back in relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Oh not really. Uh scripture does uh you know jesus does mandate uh for us to make a decision to forgive i believe yes reconciliation is never really mandated with another person right paul says as much as it's up to you live at peace with all people but it isn't always up to us and if the person is going to kill us you know then you know, they've made it not up to us, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not going to reconcile. Yes. And I really, I deeply respect that. Uh, one of our uh, members and who's been a mentor to me talked about the ministry of reconciliation as, as serving the cause of reconciliation. You're serving the cause of reconciliation, but that does not mean that reconciliation will happen 
but with your life, you're seeking to serve the cause of reconciliation. And uh, he reminded me that uh, even Jesus had Judas. And of course, obviously, Jesus uh, did nothing wrong in his relationship with Judas. But uh, at some point, Judas uh, himself did not see reconciliation as something that he was willing to try uh, with, with Jesus. Yet Peter did. Uh, for some reason or another, Peter did see reconciliation as something that he was willing to try. So I like the idea of serving the cause of reconciliation. And that's more of, of what I'm really hearing and appreciate in your analysis uh, of South Africa and Rwanda. Your comparison is that the goal wasn't one country to mimic another country. It was for both of them to serve the cause and hopefully uh, open doors for that process of reconciliation. I want to come back to the spaghetti. <laughs> I was intrigued by Mike McCullough's uh, 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 work and assessment. And I would love for our listeners to stop for a moment and imagine a big plate of spaghetti that every single strand of pasta is a person. And that rather than us imagining that 400 pieces of pasta would be laid out on the counter in perfectly straight lines, saluting the meatballs as they go, right? We're actually just talking about just this quagmire of emotion. And I think it's important for us to realize that sometimes we might be the person who forgives in the first three days. And sometimes we might be that person that is working at forgiving someone or forgiving ourselves for uh, perhaps years or decades. And uh, we should not be discouraged uh, if we find ourselves still uh, working toward that. I wanna, uh, yes, please. Throw in a little anecdote. Uh, I, I will often say, you know, I was really blessed uh, by and favored by God that I was able to forgive the murder of my mom in a very short period of time. Can you tell us a little bit about how you did that? I, I will, just as soon as I make this little point. And the, the, but that doesn't mean I'm a, a super forgiver mm. because I had a professor who gave me a B What? Can you imagine that? Ten years it took me to forgive this guy. And I did it only by a religious experience, you know, by, you know, being invited to remember this guy's face and remember this guy's person. And then it was Joy Dawson who was involved with YWAM in the early years. And, uh, you know, she... I uh, said, now imagine that Jesus comes in the room, you know, what would he do? Oh. And at first I thought, well, of course he would come and comfort me. <laughs> and then I thought, wait a minute, I've just heaped 10 years of abuse on this guy. He probably would go comfort the guy. Wow. And then, I cannot, Joy Dawson ruined my, my grudge holding against this guy. <laughs> You know, I'll never forgive her for that. But <laughs> see, now you're meddling. I do have a professor that gave me a B, and I, I see. Here you go. You are now my Joyce Dawson. You are ruining my grudge, <laughs> But I, I do think 
that for a lot of us, just hearing you say, I forgave those that murdered my mother, we would think if you peeled back your shirt, there'd be an S on it that you're a super forgiver, yet you say you're not, and you give us this illustration that we, with which we can all relate to that seemingly much less offense, much smaller injustice gap that really hangs us up. But would you mind taking a few moments and walking us through forgiving in relationship to your mother's murder? Sure. Uh, so it happened back on a New Year's Eve night um, in which my mom lived alone because my dad had died uh, five years before of cancer and, uh, and mom didn't drive. So there was no car in the driveway. And so she had gone to bed early on this New Year's Eve night. And so here's a darkened house with no car in the driveway and probably looked to probably teenagers, uh, or a particular teenager at least, that um, these people are gone and we're going to waltz in there and steal everything of value and it'll be a perfect crime. So even went up and pounded on the door because the people next door actually reported hearing a noise and you know, it didn't get repeated so they didn't investigate. But it didn't wake my mom because she had a hearing problem and was asleep. And so he went around and broke in uh, the back door um, using a crowbar and break the window out and then reaching in and unlocking the door and going in and starting to search the place. Well, what happened was my mom eventually woke up with him standing in the hallway, pulling books off of the bookshelf in the hallway. And he, you know, struck her with a, that crowbar uh, repeatedly until she died. So, you know, that, that night, you know, after being called by my brother who had discovered my mother's body, uh, I, I was down in Knoxville, Tennessee with my sister and my brother. And we were in Mike's back room talking about what we had learned from walking into the uh, police investigation. And uh, they had, by that time, narrowed it down to it looked like a, uh, a burglary and a, a probably at least one um, adolescent that had broken in and stolen some things and gotten interrupted. So I remember getting so angry as we talked about this that I pointed to a baseball bat against the wall and said, I wish whoever did that were here, I would take that baseball bat and I would hit him in the head until he died. And I said, he would not last 30 minutes. And uh, my uh, <clears throat> brother said, if I got a hold of him, he wouldn't last 10. Yeah. And my sister said, well, I'd make him last over an hour. You know, so we're all just really furious. So that night I, I went up uh, to my aunt's house to uh, spend the night and I couldn't sleep. I was so angry. So I spent four hours kind of walking around her bedroom there, uh, you know, the bedroom I was staying and, and just raging. Well, by about three o'clock in the morning, I, I just sat down on the bed and thought, well, I can't continue to do this. I'll, 
I write a eulogy for my mom because, you know, being the oldest child I, and my dad was gone, uh, I would be speaking at the funeral. And so as I sat down to kind of think about what a, a life means of a woman that hadn't gotten more than 100 miles away from home, probably, except for the brief time she was in the armed forces in, uh, in World War II as a nurse. Uh, and I, I, uh, I just thought... Um, you know, I've uh, <clears throat> I've spent a lot of time studying forgiveness. Mm. I have just allowed myself to go 24 hours and just not even think about that word. Yes. I blocked it out. And so I thought, well, I, I really should think about forgiving. And so I started to work through that reach forgiveness model that we had developed. I had worked through it many times on smaller events, but never something like that. I started to think about what it might be like for this young man to be out in the cold on New Year's Eve night, looking at a darkened house, thinking this is going to be a perfect crime, getting interrupted, thinking, this old woman is spoiling my perfect crime. Mm. Not only that, besides anger, he's probably thinking, she's looking at my face. I'm going to go to jail. He's got anger and fear, and he's holding on to that crowbar, and he has an impulse control problem, or he wouldn't be breaking into people's houses. So he reaches out and strikes her and, uh, repeatedly. As I got that far in kind of reconstructing this from an empathic point of view, um, I, I suddenly just kind of flashed back to earlier that night and seeing myself pointing to that baseball bat and saying, I wish whoever did that were here. I've had 24 hours to think about that, but I would take that baseball bat and hit him in the head repeatedly. It wouldn't be a spur-of-the-moment thing. I would do it intentionally. And I, I couldn't help but think, so whose heart is darker? Is it a kid who reacts to fear of going to jail, of anger, who has no time to think about this, who has an impulse control problem? Or is it me this forgiveness researcher, Christian, mature adult at that time who, you know, is willing to contemplate hitting somebody in the head intentionally until they die. I thought my heart's darker than his. Oh. I knew if I confess that, that I could be forgiven. Mm. And I thought, well, if, if I can be forgiven for the darkness of my heart, who am I to hold that against this this young man? And so I was able to forgive the the young man, uh, not knowing who it was. It's all at that point about, you know, just imagining what it must have been like. But I was able to forgive uh, the young man. Yes. You know, I want to thank you for that. And I know our listeners will want to sit in this for a moment and and kind of, contemplate and ruminate on what you have shared 
And this causes us to not only, you know, edge into your experience as you're helping walk us through it, but edge into our own experiences where we have found ourselves right there at the gateway to empathy or at, at least sympathy and found ourselves, you know, wrestling with that uh, reality. Part of what you've drawn me to in my mind is where the Apostle Paul is giving his defense in the later chapters of the book of Acts and the defense for why he believes what he believes. And at one point, he says to a mob that had the soldiers not intervened, would have killed him. He says to them, I too was like you. I see you in me, and I see me in you. And that strikes me so deeply that the Apostle Paul, uh, they're just narrowly escaping death from this mob, can look at them and say, you all do realize that I've been where you are, and we succeeded. We did kill the person. We did kill these people. And uh, he gives, as you know, he gives that testimony repeatedly at the close of the book of Acts. And I'm struck by his willingness to keep recounting those truths that would, in some sense or another, pave the way for him for some kind of an empathic um, response. The other thing I would like to note, and you know I did not know your story, and you can testify that I did not know that part of your story, But what you just modeled for us was self-directed learning and forgiveness. Um, And that's something that you have prepared for us. So as we close out, would you tell us a little bit about the resources that are available for our listeners for self-directed growth and forgiveness? So uh, we are, uh, you know, kind of my philosophy all along has been to give psychology away. So the studies that we've done, the resources we've developed to help people clinically, whether it's couples or, uh, or uh, parents or, uh, uh, you know, adults in, in a, a group, uh, we've tried to make them completely free and available to anyone who can use them. Yes. So I have a website, uh, www.evworthington-forgiveness, E-V-W-O-R-H-I-N-G-T-O-N-forgiveness.com. <clears throat> and there are all kinds of workbooks and resources for leading groups, participating in groups. Um, for example, there is a, a do-it-yourself workbook for uh Forgiving yourself yes. uh, in a Christian context. There's a do-it-yourself workbook for forgiving others. Yes. Uh, there's a do-it-yourself workbook for building humility, yes. for building patience, for a more positive life. Uh, so we've just tried to make uh, all of those resources mm. uh, available. And what we've been doing uh and I've been very excited about is we've been trying to help communities forgive and not not just individuals, but whole communities. So this uh, study that we're doing uh, uh, in uh, six different sites in five countries, the South Africa, Indonesia, Colombia, 
uh, Ukraine and uh, China. Uh, we there are two parts to that. One is that people work through one of those self do-it-yourself workbooks on forgiveness. The other part is to try to help the community, the whole community forgive. Yes. We have done this in Christian universities, even in secular universities, in uh, uh, churches, big churches, small churches. We did it at our uh, little church of about a hundred adults. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, forgiveness is all about how much time you spend mm. to forgive. So that means the key to forgiveness is not a 30 minute sermon that will have virtually no impact on the whole group. Although one or two people may think it's the greatest sermon they ever heard. But if I use that sermon to try to direct people to fill out a workbook to forgive, to, you know, read a book on forgiveness and try to apply it to their lives, to, to engage in a, in a psychoeducational group or a, a study group or a book uh, group, some, any kind of group where they spend time trying to forgive. This is what ends up uh, changing individuals' lives. And if you're doing it in concert and you're, you're being the body of Christ and you're attached to the other people and you're encouraging the other people, this strengthens the whole body beyond just adding the individuals together. Yes. Because everybody's working more toward a common goal. Yes. This is really what's on my heart right now. And, uh, you know, to say, how do we change the world by yes. forgiving? Yes. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, uh, I heard someone say, if your goal can be accomplished in 10 years, you're working on, the, on too small of a problem, right? And yet, and yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But this is a profound step because it's the truth of Jesus. It was Jesus's goal. Jesus came with that fundamental belief that what happened on the east end of the Mediterranean Sea 2,000 years ago uh, with the son of a carpenter uh, is the, the pivot point of history that can change everything. And it's uh, exciting that we can join God on that mission. I just have to say... Thank you for your generosity. The time you have spent with us is, uh, is profound. And your transparency and your willingness to share and your willingness to make these resources available. These resources, uh, we will uh, put that website in the chat section. And uh, we will also have those available on our website as well. We will direct you. If you go to lovefirst.org, you'll see resources there and that'll take you right to Dr. Worthington's site where you will be able to access those resources. I want to say again, uh, Ev, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for generously giving us this time and we certainly look forward to more conversations uh, in the future. Well, great. This was great for me. I really enjoyed being with you and being with the people who are watching this. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Love first, I